Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. When it comes to the definition of terms like healthy and organic, the meaning will often depend upon the doctor or scientist that you ask. But when it comes to food labeling in the United States, the ultimate meaning is often decided by lawyers in a court of law. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Today we're talking about food labeling and our guest knows a great deal about this subject. Lauren Handel is a practitioner and an academic whose entire focus is food law. Lauren, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you for having me. A lot of the law relating to labeling in the United States came out of tragedy, out of people eating things that turned out to be something quite different. That's true. It's true of food regulation in general that a lot of the concern, at least initially, was on what's called economic adulteration, which means introducing cheaper ingredients or watering down food so that it's not what the consumer expects to get. It's not as high of a quality as the consumer expects to get. And so a lot of the labeling regulation has to do with addressing that problem. There are things called standards of identity in which food is defined by regulation. And so the particular terms in that standard have to be used to describe that food. So when it for, an, for example, in a restaurant, if they put a little extra water in your orange juice, you might never know, but if you're buying that orange juice at a supermarket, it should say very clearly whether they've added or not. Yeah, orange juice is actually a, a defined product, and it's um, you might be surprised what's in orange juice actually under the regulation, but it is something that if consumers cared to find out exactly what it means for to have a product labeled as orange juice, they could look it up in the regulation and find out. So when it comes to labeling, it's both to ensure the quality of the product and to inform the customer about what they're buying. That's true. And today, consumers and part of the sort of food movement that's going on is that consumers are much more interested not only in what's in the product, that's very important, probably always has been, but now people are paying more attention to the health consequences of what they eat, but also to how food is made. People are very interested in the production practices in agriculture and in the manufacturing of food. What types of ingredients are they? Organic ingredients? Is it made with sustainable practices? Those are all kinds of things that people are interested in and that the market is trying to address in their labeling and marketing. Why don't we start with a label that most of us are used to seeing, organic. Now, organic, I, I'm thinking back to my biology days, just meant that it came from some living organism. What does organic mean now? And then we'll talk a little bit about the, the case law involved. Organic actually is uh, defined in, in the law, in the Organic Product, Food Production Act, and USDA regulations and standards set by the uh, National Organic Standards Board. And so it's a very, very defined term by regulation, and it means that agricultural products are produced using a set of practices or actually not using a set of excluded or prohibited practices. So what types of things are excluded? Are we talking about certain pesticides? Synthetic chemicals, uh, genetically engineered plants are excluded from organic agriculture. So when I see organic, I should know certain pesticides were not used, it's not GMO, what else? Well, the label itself will tell you more if you know the regulations about 
how organic the product is. So if it's a fruit, a whole fruit, fruit or vegetable, it's not been processed in any way and it's labeled as organic, that means or it should mean as long as the, the purveyor is complying with the law that it was certified by an accredited third party entity which is a private organization that gets accredited by the government to go out and certify that the practices comply with the organic standards. If it's a processed product, there are a variety of labels that get used on the front of the package, which is called the principal display panel. It's the part that consumers are most likely to see. So they can't hide it in the back underneath the, the barcode? Some things get put on, on the back in the ingredients list. Um, information about who certified, what, what the name of the certifier and their address will also usually be on the back of the package. But on the front of the package, if it says organic, then that means that the product is at least 95% made from organic ingredients. So there's a little bit of leeway to deal with you know, trace products, products that may not live up to the high standard of 100% organic? Okay, well, the other 5% often is non-agricultural products. So ingredients, for example, if it was a baked good that you would need for a leavening agent, you know, some other kinds of additives that are needed in food production, there's actually a list in the regulations of allowable or prohibited substances in processed organic foods. 100% organic. Is that exactly what it sounds like? It is. So that is the same, but without the 5%. That's right. It, it means buffer. all organic, um, all ingredients or processing aids are certified organic. Are there other types of labels related to organic? There are. You might see a label that says made with organic and then the name of some ingredient or category of ingredients or made with organic soy. Maybe that's a product that has other ingredients, but that means that it's at least 70% organic ingredients, and the rules allow you to specify a few of the organic ingredients if it's at least 70%. So made with organic fill in the blank. Maybe this is a good time to talk about something that's perhaps more fundamental, which is the labeling protections aren't just about prohibiting false statements. They're also about avoiding misleading statements. That's true. The, the test is false or misleading. As a, as a general principle, it is illegal to sell what's called misbranded food, which means that anything on the label is false or misleading, or that the manufacturer fails to disclose something material about the food that consumers would want to know. Why don't we take a look at a couple of examples? Why don't you share with us a case that would involve factually accurate labeling that just was determined to be misleading? So an example of a, a kind of case, or there have been a number of cases involving labeling using the term antioxidant, there are rules, F FDA rules, about when you can use an antioxidant claim on a food product. And you can only use that term if the particular nutrient has what's recognized antioxidant activity. There are a lot of food products out there now where the science may not be fully developed enough for FDA to agree that a product has recognized F uh, antioxidant activity. I'm thinking blueberries, uh, blueberries acai berries. Um, blueberries, do uh, FDA would agree. Um, things like vitamin C, beta carotene, those are things that FDA will agree recognize antioxidant activity. There are a lot of uh, green tea products that have newer nutrients that we're hearing about now in the marketplace that 
people would not have ever heard of before, where the manufacturers want to claim that the product has antioxidant activity um, or contains antioxidants or is high in antioxidants. Those are claims that you actually can't make legally under FDA regulations. They may be true. I mean, it's possibly a question just for science to figure out, but they could very well be true. And yet there have been some lawsuits where the allegations were that those claims were false or misleading because they violate FDA rules. So here it may be the case where in an effort to protect consumers, the FDA may be lagging a little bit behind the science. I think that's true. That's definitely true. Um, a great example of that right now has to do with the term healthy. Healthy or health or healthful, any sort of variant on that term, if it's used in relation to the nutrients in the food, which is called a nutrient content claim, it has a specific set of criteria that the product has to meet. Basically, it means that it has significant amounts of good nutrients, vitamins and minerals, and relatively low amounts of the so-called bad nutrients, just fat. Why do we actually need this protection? Don't we as consumers know that the company is selling us a product and saying that it's healthy? And isn't that just like saying it's delicious? Aren't we the ones who have to decide? Uh, it is paternalistic in, in a way. Um, there, I think, is a legitimate point that consumers, you know, more and more, and I mean, for a long time now, food has been made in manufacturing plants where people don't know what's in the, in the product. And actually, even just the requirements to provide nutrition labeling only go back, goes back to the 1990s. It's not that old. And so the idea is that there is certain basic information that consumers need to have to be able to make reasonable choices for themselves and for what's best for their diet. And then there are a lot of rules that are kind of nitpicky that consumers mostly don't even know that they exist. And you know, they wouldn't know, most consumers, I don't think they would know that if you ask them what does healthy mean on a food label, they wouldn't know that it means you know, less than two grams of saturated fat, but that is part of what it That's means. That's one of the definitions of the term healthy. Why don't we talk a little bit more about healthy and get, get into a couple of the specific cases. One of the cases that involved litigation of, this, of the meaning of the term was the kind bar case. Mm -hmm. Can you give us the basics? Yeah, um, kind bars, which is um, a snack bar made mostly of nuts, nuts and dried fruits and maybe chocolate, I don't know. Um, but a pretty popular product got a warning letter, actually, from FDA. That's what started this whole issue. A warning letter from FDA saying, in part, that they were in violation of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act for having misbranded their products as healthy and that they did not qualify for use of the term healthy because being such a nut-heavy product, the levels the saturated of saturated fat. fat were too high to qualify for that claim. So that's a basically a technical labeling violation as has become kind of common when it when there are FDA warning letters relating to labeling issues like that food litigation has become so popular that then there are follow-on lawsuits where class action lawsuits get filed there were a number of them filed against the makers of kind bars basically repeating the same allegations as were in the warning letter but now saying under state consumer protection laws that a class of consumers are entitled to recover for being deceived by that product. Now I know from just knowing your background and, and 
you know, the types of clients you represent, mostly companies. Um, maybe we'll get that on the table that you, you are. That I'm defense oriented. oriented. <laughs> but what would be the damage? What, what is my claim? Am I saying, oh, I ate this kind bar. It had a, a little bit more saturated fat than meets the normal guidelines for healthy. How much money do you now owe? The measure of damages in these cases typically is the difference between the value of the product had it lived up to what it was represented to be versus what it actually was. It's actually extremely difficult to figure that out and it's been a big problem for the plaintiff's lawyers in the cases that get to that so stage. So I'd have to look at two different kind bars, maybe one that had less saturated fat and one that had more and, and try and figure out the market value between the two, the difference? In that particular example, you would be looking at a product that was labeled as healthy versus one that was not, or I don't even know how to <laughs> explain it in that context. But it's, but Suffice it to say, it's, it's a very complicated it's, pseudoscience it's just complicated. trying to figure the out. The idea is that if you accept the premise that the product was not actually healthy, then it was worth less than it was represented to be. And that if it was truly healthy, then maybe that's why they got to, pay, to charge a price premium for that product. And that consumers would not have paid that extra amount, whatever that is, which is extremely difficult to measure if it was labeled accurately. That's the allegation. So let, let's take, let's take a, a look again at the term healthy. Is this, healthy just means so much and it, it can mean such a different thing to so many different people. Is the floor, is the basic requirement something that's fluid and changing? Is the Surgeon General involved? Uh, it takes a really long time to make regulations for administrative agencies to move they usually don't move quickly. And so, the, and the process involves notice and comment rulemaking, the agency has to propose rules, they get comments from the public and from public health authorities and they consider all of these things. from companies as well. From companies as well, and it takes a very long time. So we have these rules that have been in place for some time now as to what is healthy. And again, I'm, I'm only talking about the use of that particular word and variance on it with the root health Basically, I'm so not talking healthy, about healthful. good for you or nutritious or wholesome. The rules I'm talking about Those don't mean apply. Something different. Well, they actually aren't regulated. Okay. The, other than they fall under the must be truthful and not misleading. There isn't a specific definition of those terms. For healthy, there is. And they're probably outdated rules, but it will take a long time and there needs to be resources available and it has to be relatively high on the priority list for the agency to want to change it. And I suspect it's not <laughs> very high on the priority list, at least right now for FDA. So meanwhile, we'll have to stick with the old rules and then we'll see some, com some companies which perhaps have a healthy product ending up paying some fines in court. Possibly getting sued, um, possibly getting warning letters from the FDA. Um, hopefully having some advice from knowledgeable counsel to consider using a different word if their product is doesn't the qualify. Science, is the science a defense? Can they argue, well, in fact, three, ounce, or three grams of saturated fat in our product turns out to be healthy, and here's the scientific evidence to prove it? It might be. And I, the, so there is no private cause of action under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Um, 
Except in California. <laughs> um, except that California has basically given consumers the right to enforce that law in California's law. But outside of California, um, and just under federal law, you cannot, as a private citizen, sue someone strictly because they're violating FDA regulations. So the issue in the state court cases, or in federal cases under state law, is are consumers being deceived? Was this fraudulent? Was it a misrepresentation? And even if a product violates the regulations, it could be argued that it was still not deceptive because nobody knows what healthy means under the regulations. So we talked about healthy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there are other terms that are associated with, with healthy, nutritious, beneficial, uh, wholesome. What do these words mean and how are they different from healthy? Get a dictionary and look them up. I mean, they're, they're not defined in regulations. So the, there are a lot of terms that aren't defined in regulations and that get used in the marketing of food products. And so the only rule that applies is that they have to be truthful and not misleading. And so a manufacturer that wants to make a claim that their product is nutritious or wholesome or good for you should have a reasonable basis for making that statement. In other words, they don't mean much at all. They don't. So I could say this is wholesome, uh, this is wholesome whole grain uh, rice, or I could say this is wholesome salt. It doesn't, you know, eating a bunch of salt isn't particularly good for anyone, but is it not wholesome? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really sure what wholesome means either. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so why don't we go back to terms that actually lawyers have been involved with. Let's talk about natural. Natural also is a term that is not defined in regulations, but has been the subject of a lot of litigation, but partially because it's not defined in, in regulations. There have been a lot of class action lawsuits around that term, food products that contain, for example, genetically modified ingredients or highly processed foods, foods that contain high fructose corn syrup. Certain leavening products. Certain leavening products or other kinds of synthetic or artificial ingredients. There's a new consumer report study on what that means to consumers and how desirable they think that claim is. Uh, apparently it still means a lot to consumers in, in that they think it's desirable. They're not necessarily, necessarily sure what it means. So in order to determine whether something is misleading, you have to understand how people currently interpret the meaning of the word. Well, right. So in the litigation, the issue is, would a reasonable consumer be deceived? And so that is very much an issue. What would a reasonable consumer expect when they see the words natural or all natural on a food product? And would a reasonable consumer reading that think, well, this product must not contain any genetically modified ingredients or must not contain any synthetic leavening agent? So the word natural it's not one that has pre-existing guidelines. There is an informal policy that FDA follows for its enforcement, which is that foods labeled as natural should not contain anything artificial or synthetic or any added color. On the topic of natural, there's been some prominent litigation. Can you give a couple examples? Sure. Um, to, to name some names, there have been lawsuits against... Um, Ben & Jerry's, for example, got sued for using the term natural on products that contained alkalized cocoa, the allegation being that... One of the products in the, in the chocolate? 
Right, right. In the in the chocolate used in Ben and Jerry's products, that alkalized cocoa is not all natural; that it is synthetic. So one is Ben and Jerry's. Another one was Naked Beverages, Naked Juice. Naked Juice um, had claims very similar to a lot of these cases, where the product was labeled as natural, but contained allegedly GMO ingredients and synthetic ingredients. And that case was also settled without settled admitting at, to wrongdoing. Right. Right, there have been a lot of, I think in that case, multi-million dollar settlements. There are a lot of cases involving um, tortilla chips and things that have corn as an ingredient because corn, for the most part, is genetically modified in this country. Products with, with corn as an ingredient um, could be, if they claim to be all natural, unless it is organic and the manufacturer takes steps to avoid GMO ingredients, most likely will contain genetically modified corn because something in excess of 95% of the corn grown in this country is genetically engineered. Corn and corn soy. And, and soy are both mostly genetically engineered in this country. Let's talk a little bit about livestock. Now, when it comes to meat production, this is an area where initially a lot of this regulation came into play. And I'm thinking of uh, the book The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Now we have these terms that signify higher quality or more ethical treatment of animals. Let's talk about a couple. One is free range. This is usually used with poultry. Right. Does it have a legal meaning? When we're talking about meat and poultry, you have to understand that it's the U.S. Department of Agriculture that regulates those products. And their process is much more extensive when it comes to labeling than for FDA in that USDA actually approves labels. And so under USDA's rules, free range actually does have meaning, and it means that the poultry has access to the outdoors. It just needs to be able to go outside for some period of time during right. the day? Right. Is it every day? Probably not, no. But there needs to be documentation of that for a, a farmer or some uh, a meat processor selling those products. When they submit their label for approval, they need to be able to provide documentation of how the animals were raised. And so that's an example where there actually is some sort of definition of what that term means. Most of the terms that get used with regard to animal welfare practices are not defined by USDA. And in essence, the government kind of takes the manufacturer's word for it. I mean, they require documentation, but they leave it to the manufacturer to define the term for themselves and then to prove that they live up to whatever standards they've set for themselves. Despite whatever customers may believe, the ultimate definition here is, is at least starting with the people who are selling the product. That's true. Um, although there are third-party certifications, so Animal Welfare Approved is an example of that, of a voluntary certification that has a fairly rigorous set of standards pertaining to how the animals are raised, that a farmer would have to go through audits and show that they meet all of those standards to get a license to use that certification mark on their label. Okay, quick break for the MCLE code for those who are listening for CLE MCLE credit in California. The code for this interview is 071023. Again, that's 071023. Two, three. And now back to the interview.
Another label that many of us look for is grass-fed. Does that have a, a, a legal meaning? So grass-fed, to, to get a grass-fed claim approved, the animal has to have been fed grass or forage, you know, hay, for its lifetime. Exclusively or a certain percentage? Is it like the 95% that's required for organic? There was a standard that USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service had promulgated, which it recently withdrew. And so again, this is in the category of the manufacturer or farmer gets to set its own standards for what that means. Does organic mean something different when it comes to, to livestock or eggs? As with other agricultural practices, there are a set of excluded practices for organic livestock production or egg production, and so it means the same in that it means the product complies with those standards. Does it mean that the chicken only ate organic ingredients? That is true. That is part of the standard that when you see organic on eggs or meat, it means that the animal was fed only organic feed. When we're talking about labeling, another important area is the nutritional content, whether it's low in fat or low sodium. What are the rules there? Well, FDA regulations, these are called nutrient content claims. Any claim that characterizes the level of a nutrient, so like you mentioned, low in fat, low in sodium, high in fiber, high in protein, those are defined in regulations. There are actually only certain terms that you're allowed to use. So high, rich in, excellent source of, good source of, those are examples of terms that you're allowed to use. So you can't say fabulous fiber? No, right. So there, there are lots of uses of unapproved synonyms for those terms. But so the first rule is you can only use the term that FDA allows and then only if the product actually contains enough of the nutrient or is below, if you're talking about a low claim, is below the maximum level for that nutrient. So the FDA will set a threshold for each of these nutrients. Right, so to say that a product contains or is a good source of a nutrient, for example, it needs to contain at least 10% of the recommended daily intake of that nutrient per serving. And what if you want to say it's a, a high source? At least 20% of the recommended daily intake for a high or excellent source in or rich in claim. One of the basic requirements in labeling is that the product not be misleading. There have been some funny or interesting cases involving that. Maybe we could talk a bit about the, the Crunchberry cereal case. Crunchberries is my favorite. Um, for the lawyers watching um, and law students, it's an entertaining decision to read um, because it was actually a case, one of the few cases that got dismissed at the motion to dismiss stage. So dismissed on the pleadings because the judge said that it is simply implausible that anyone could think that crunch berries, this cereal where it's called crunch berries, the allegation was that it was misleading people into believing that it contained actual fruit. and That a crunch berry is, is, is a, a berry. fruit, right. And so it is, it's a funny decision where the judge said basically no one would think that crunch berries grow on trees or, or bushes. Regardless, here we're talking about the label of a box of cereal whose main ingredients are likely sugar and corn. Right. And the claim is by calling it berry, you're suggesting that this is some type of fruit, nutritious. Right. That was the allegation, that consumers would be deceived because they would think that it contained actual fruit. The judge didn't have it in this case. That's right. And that's an uncommon outcome, actually. In most of the cases 
that are, are based on consumer fraud, having to do with food labeling, have survived the motion to dismiss stage. It's usually very easy to get past a motion to dismiss in litigation. You just have to be able to, to plead a claim. And the courts have looked at most of them and said that there is at least enough here that it's possible that reasonable consumers could be deceived. And so they'll let the case proceed beyond that stage. There's also been litigation around non-dairy products like soy milk or rice milk or almond milk. Soy milk, and that, that is actually another example where the case was dismissed at the, at the pleading stage. The, the allegations in the soy milk cases were, or at least one case, was that the consumer would believe that the product was milk and it didn't actually contain any dairy. Um, and the court said no, that that's, it's not plausible that a reasonable consumer would think that soy milk contained dairy and would be misled. Meanwhile, I looked at a bottle of almond milk on my way in today and it said almond beverage. Have the companies just decided to be extra cautious? That is a unique example, I think, that where of a company trying to be extra cautious. And there actually are rules about what is milk. Milk is defined in federal regulations. Um, I think most companies are taking the approach that now consumers commonly understand that almond milk is not a dairy product and is very different than dairy milk. Uh, so most companies are labeling almond milk, soy milk, using the term milk and have not really gotten into trouble because of that, except for the one case we just talked about. But because that was dismissed so early, I, I doubt there will be many more of those. But it is an issue where the dairy industry has actually complained to FDA and said that they didn't think it was fair for plant-based products to be using the term milk and that it's unfair for them. Sticking with beverages, let's talk about juice. I've seen products labeled as grape drink or orange drink. I assume that's not because they chose that term. Now, juice is an area where there are very specific regulations. Again, going back to the concern that consumers should get what they think they're going to get, um, because it is very common to use apple and grape juice in juices that are blended with other fruits that might be more higher value, higher nutrient content. Or just more desirable. Or Yeah, more desirable. And so there are very specific rules about how you describe a juice product. And if it's not actually juice, you can't call it juice. So juice means it was expressed from a fruit or vegetable. And if that's not the case, then you have to call it a drink or a beverage. You mentioned that a lot of our juices, despite what they may list as their name, are often derived from grape or apple. There was a prominent case involving pomegranate juice. Right, so most of the litigation that, that occurs now has to do with consumers' class actions brought on behalf of groups of consumers where the complaint is that consumers are defrauded or misled. But that case actually was a competitor case. So there's a different set of law under the Lanham Act having to do with unfair competition. And false advertising or misleading advertising could be one way that competitors unfairly get an advantage in the marketplace. So in that case, if correct me if I'm wrong, but one, of, uh, one company, Palm, was suing Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola saying, by calling your, your product pomegranate juice, you're actually cheapening, cheapening our product 
because you don't actually have that much pomegranate juice. Right. So it's an interesting case, and it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the allegation was that Coca-Cola's product, which was labeled as pomegranate or pomegranate blueberry, and actually the allegation was never that it, that the labeling of that product did not comply with FDA rules. So a it could very well have been compliant with FDA rules, and yet Palm still felt that it was unfair competition because not only the way the words that were used, but the imagery on the packaging, which showed pomegranates and blueberries, was suggesting that there was perhaps more of those higher value fruits in the product than there actually was. There was actually a very small amount of pomegranate and blueberry. And the palm, the palm juice contained majority pomegranate right. ingredients, whereas the Coca-Cola product Contain mostly grape or apple juice and small amounts of pomegranate or blueberry juice. And so it was an interesting issue in that if you have a product that's compliant with FDA regulations, then you have this other set of law under the Lanham Act. Is there actually a claim that can be brought between competitors under the Lanham Act, or does the FDA Give protection. Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act actually sort of preempt that in a way? And the U.S. Supreme Court decided that there is no preemption or preclusion of that claim, that um, both things can exist and actually reinforce each other. And so, at least in theory, that's paved the way for more competitor claims. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with us and talking about food. I got to tell you, next time I, I go to the grocery store, I'll be a little bit more cautious on what I buy. My pleasure. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.